from Kurtco Media. The spiritual guide to all this is Yutaka Kariyama, Mr. K. His signature autograph was always love cars, love people, love life. Boy, if I could take a little piece of that and apply that to my own life, I would be so grateful. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with another episode of Cars That Matter. I'm here today with Pete Evanal. Greetings. I'm glad you could join us. Hello. Pete is the author of Nissan Z, 50 Years of Exhilarating Performance. It was just published this year by Motor Books, an imprint of Quarto Press. I'm here to tell you I have the book in hand, and among all of the recent automotive publications, this one really stands apart. Congratulations on a great project, Pete. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. It was a labor of love. I put it together fairly quickly because it was something that Nissan jumped on board at a last minute decision. It was interesting. They really did make a big deal out of the 25th anniversary. And I don't know why, but it didn't really occur to them to do much about the 50th anniversary. Then all of a sudden, somebody internally said, we really have to. And that was Hiroshi Tamura. They got in touch with their licensing agency, which is EMI. And EMI contacted Motorbooks and Motorbooks contacted me because I had written an earlier version a 35th anniversary. And so we put this book together really in a little less than a year. I noticed the foreword is by Hiroshi Tamura, and obviously he had a hand in recognizing that 50 years of Zenus, as you call it. Pete, you've got kind of an interesting career. Obviously, you're a Z aficionado, but you're also a professor in the Department of Communications at Cal State Fullerton. Probably as we talk about your book and about the history of the Z cars, we'll maybe get into a little bit of the market speak that went along with essentially introducing a whole new car and a whole new concept to a whole new audience. That is the North American audience for whom a sports car from Japan was a brand new, unthinkable concept back in 1970. I know this isn't your first Z car rodeo either because you published Z 35 years of Nissan sports car in 2005. (laughs) It's hard to imagine that the nameplate is as old as it is. And for its 35th anniversary, there were some pretty exciting things happening too. But I guess really to start at the beginning, let's go back and look at the Z legacy from the start. You and I are old enough to remember that back in the 60s and early 70s, Japanese cars were by and large disregarded. I'm being charitable. I'd say a joke in some ways, but they were no joke because of course, Honda and Toyota essentially took over their respective markets and Datsun did the same. But really, the only sports car we had back in the 60s was the Toyota 2000. And that was such a rare and esoteric piece of work that it almost doesn't count. Nissan did try. They had a 1600. Their little sports car was a little convertible. It started as a 1600. They called it the Fair Lady in Japan, of course. And then they brought it over here to the US. And then it became a slightly larger motor. And they had it with the two liter and they called it a 2000. I remember that 2000. Well, a friend of mine had a canary yellow one, and I thought it was an amazing thing. It was right up there with any MGB, except that it was more reliable and uh, (laughs) a great little competitive car. And Peter Brock raced it, so did Bob Sharp on the East Coast. And so that kind of really established a footprint, if you will, for Nissan, at least from a motorsports standpoint, and it gave them some credibility. And it really provided the power, I guess, internally to look at a genuine sports car, a hardtop version. 
version. And you can always thank Mr. K, Yutaka Karayama, who pushed that car, the Z, initially. And he was here in America as the president of Nissan USA. And he went back to Japan and said, we really have to have a sports car that is affordable and is something that everyone can afford here in the United States. And so he basically brought the idea of democratizing a sports car. You mentioned the Toyota 2000 GT. It was an incredible car, but it didn't really have the legs to expand. They didn't really bring it over here in significant quantities, and it was a very expensive car. As opposed to the little roadsters, I remember Bob Bondurant used the little 2000s for his driving school. They were so good and reliable and relatively inexpensive. The Toyota was essentially unaffordable, and it was fragile. And even though it did a little bit of racing, there just wasn't enough critical mass to really make it stick. Nissan really wanted to be the first to come in there. Honda was here, but they made really small throwaway cars to begin with. Let's call them shoeboxes. I think the only thing smaller was that Subaru 360 that looked like an egg with 10-inch wheels. But Nissan was ahead of their time. Of course, they were called Datsun then, but they came out with their 240Z in late 69, but they also had a pickup truck. And so those were two key markets that they used to go after slightly different audiences, but that's how they penetrated the U.S. market, at least initially. So many times a great nameplate like the 240Z comes about because of the vision of a single person or a tight team. And you talk about the Yutaka Katayama or Mr. K. Katayama-san was obviously an interesting guy and he must have been doing something right because he lived to be 105 years old. <laughs> That's a remarkable thing in and of itself. You speak very fondly of him in your book. Can you give us a little insight into what it took to get his own corporate colleagues and superiors to buy into as crazy an idea as a sports car for America? I think he was just a force. He just had such an incredible passion. I had the pleasure of meeting with him several times and interviewed him, not only for my previous book, but also speaking to him at several of the Z-Cons and car shows. I mean, he was very passionate, loved people, as he said in his slogan, love life, love people. You couldn't not like him. I hate double negative, but the fact is, is that I believe that his passion and his persuasive skills were partially enough to demonstrate that he could sell this car in the United States. And I think that's what it took to convince his contemporaries, his colleagues in Japan, that if he could have the opportunity to bring the Z here in America, he would show them that that was the right car at the right time and he would be successful with it. And they believed him. They were a little skeptical, his colleagues in Japan, but they obviously invested in the car and said, okay, now it's up to you and your colleagues to make sure that this happens. And uh, it did. Pete, you're a marketing man. So let's clear up the name change. Now, again, today we'd call it a rebranding. But to me, Nissan is always going to be Datsun. Can you explain how the name change came about and why? Nissan was always the corporate name, always has been. Datsun has a history of its own, was used originally in Japan, and then eventually through mergers and acquisitions of other companies, the corporation became Nissan. And that was the name that they utilized at least internationally. Nissan wanted to brand their name Nissan around the world. They wanted to have one name, one brand, and that makes total sense. Why would you have three or four different brands around the world? So at some point in the late 70s, early 80s, they said, okay, we need to brand our company's name, particularly in North America, as Nissan. First, it was Nissan by Datsun, and then it was Datsun by Nissan. 
Eventually, the nameplate just became Nissan. And Nissan assumed all the costs of replacing all the signage at the dealerships down to the business cards. I mean, they invested many millions of dollars to do this. A lot of dealers, of course, were very unhappy about this. But for Nissan, it was important to have one name, one symbol, one identity. And from a marketing standpoint, that made total sense. Funnily enough, Pete, it's always going to be Datsun to me. In the same way that till the day dad died, my dad called me Bobby. And there's just no way around it. You grow up with a name and that's what it's going to be. So for me and you, it's a Datsun 240Z. That car really changed the game entirely, both in terms of looks and power versus price. Launched here, I guess, in the U.S. in 1970. Is that right? That's right. A lot of interesting things were happening back then. Ferrari Daytona was fresh on the ground. Porsche's 911 was just making its way in motorsport and in the public consciousness. And here we get the Datsun 240Z all of a sudden coming in at a fraction of the price of any of those. What was it, about 35 bucks at the time? Yeah, a little less than $3,500. I mean, it was a wonderful time. If you were an automotive enthusiast and I was a teenager at the time, it was just incredible for me to see all the cars out there. I kept dragging my dad to dealerships. Dad, we got to see this car and this car. And I'd spent a lot of my childhood living overseas. My dad worked for the U.S. government and we had just come back, believe it or not, from Iran. And so we were in showrooms and looking at stuff. He bought a Pinto. <laughs> dad, come on. I mean, Seriously, a Pinto. Well, you know, at the time, the Pinto or the Vega probably seemed like the right thing to do. But the 240Z was definitely a cut above. Oh, yeah. Its looks, obviously, really defined it as being a car that was something special. It really looked like a European sports car. Whether you think of a Jaggy type or a Ferrari 275, it had all the proportions down. Who was the designer. Can you talk about the design of that automobile? You could start with Yutaka Kadayama, Mr. K. The other gentleman that you always have to say is Soishi Kawazo. He was the vice president on the East Coast. He was also very responsible for selling the cars on the East Coast. Takashi Ishihara was also involved with respect to selling the cars. Those gentlemen were really necessary for being instrumental in making sure that this car was brought to America. With respect to the designers, the two designers started in early 1965. Their names were Yoshihiko Matsuo, and his boss was Teichi Hara. And those two gentlemen were basically responsible for the design. They oversaw most of the development of passenger cars and trucks and vans at what was then Nissan in Japan. But Mr. Matsuo really is credited with the design of the Z. The cars weren't just beautiful. They actually had a really great engine. And it was an inline six that served them well in competition too. Can you talk about the race history of those cars early on? BRE was racing on the West Coast. They first ran the Fairlady, the 1600 and the 2000, the Roadster. Brock and Kadayama developed a very close relationship. Kadayama was a huge race fan and came to as many West Coast races as he could. And so with driver John Morton, who actually wrote the introduction to my first book, both of those gentlemen, they formed a partnership between driver and owner that was just cemented together. They went and tore up the SCCA and scored countless victories and championships and really added an element of credibility to the car to show not only was it a great performer, but a bulletproof engine. That straight six was a powerful motor and really was chewing up the competition on the racetrack. And that really translated to a lot of advertising showing that that was the same motor that you could purchase in the showroom. On the East Coast, Bob Sharp with Bob Sharp Racing, he was racing himself first, and then we started adding drivers like P.L. Newman. Paul Newman never went by his name, Paul Newman, on the race car. Generally, it was P.L. Newman. I had the pleasure of meeting him several times when he ran the Trans Am 
in the 1980s, I worked for SCCA Pro Racing at the time, based out of Denver, Colorado. And one of my responsibilities was the Trans Am, and Newman ran that. His racing effort, of course, was first class all the way, big tractor trailer with Newman Sharp Racing. And he'd roll out with those turbo 300 ZXs, and everybody was just always in awe. And Newman, he took his racing very seriously, and those cars were incredible. Newman won a race, his only pro race, at his home track, which was Lime Rock Park, and you couldn't shut the man up. Normally, he was very quiet, kept a very low profile at the racetrack, but that particular day when he won, he was just itching to tell everybody his life story and everything about racing, how important it was. But the credibility that he added as a racer, that Bob Sharp added both in the amateur ranks and then in the pro ranks, and they brought in a lot of sponsorship, Budweiser, Coca-Cola, Planters Peanuts, that helped with advertising and helped exposure level for Nissan. But that trickled down and then a lot of other competitors started running Datsun 240Zs, 260s, 280s, 300s in all levels of racing. Nissan's motorsports department, I ended up working for them in the 90s, first under Kastner, who ran the program. He had worked with TR6s and really got involved with Nissan. And then Frank Hansowitz took over when Kastner retired. And Frank ran that department for 27 years. So motorsports was really instrumental and a big part of Nissan's legacy and in helping sell a lot of vehicles. It certainly was an enduring design because the 240Z lasted 70 through 73. And it was quickly supplanted by a slightly larger displacement version called the 260, which only lasted for a year, right? That's correct. And then on to the 280. There's some debate as to why the 260 was only one year. It really seems to be one that they kept in there just as a shoehorn before they went to the 280, which was a larger displacement, a little bit more refined. They also had to adhere to more emissions control. So there were some decisions made in Japan to put a 260 in there. And again, back to marketing, I think that they designed that car or released that car with a different model number simply to create demand or the fact that, hey, this is a new car. It could be of interest to you, but we're working very earnestly towards a 280. But the 300ZX, I mean, that was a whole different car. There was a previous 300ZX, which was still kind of shaped like the original 240. That came out in the mid to late 80s. So that 300ZX, it had the slightly hidden headlights. But when the new 300ZX came out, they kept the same nameplate, which I thought, that was kind of strange. They might have changed the nameplate because the car was completely changed. Such a swooping difference to the look. I remember when that launched, my buddy bought one in 1990. I bought a new Carrera at the time and he bought a new ZX. Between the two cars, we'd trade them off and I thought that 300ZX was really one hell of a car in an exquisite shape that actually as a design holds up today impeccably. That car is as refined a look now as it was when it was first introduced 30 years ago. Help us put it into context, Pete. Renault and Nissan started to get together. I guess there's a real close relationship between the French and the Japanese companies that allowed both of them to sort of join ranks and create a stronger brand for both companies, right? I worked at Nissan at the time, and Nissan was kind of going through kind of a downward spiral. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It was just that they were having some financial difficulties, some problems. The Frontier was the replacement truck for the old hard body. It did not take off as well as they 
they had hoped. Keep in mind that the Z had been discontinued. I was actually running the Z store for Nissan at the time. The Z store, of course, was the program where we were restoring original 240Zs. And I was running it kind of on a shoestring, but bless Nissan, they were at least funding that. But there wasn't a lot of marketing money because budgets were being cut. So Nissan was looking for a partner and along came Renault. And this was about 1998 when it happened. And we got a message on everybody's desk when we came to work one day that said Nissan is going to partner with Renault. We have a new automotive family, and that's really when things got a little different. It didn't really affect any of us in terms of our positions, but it was the partnership that they needed. Quite honestly, the cash infusion that they needed, maybe the stability that they needed, but it really kept Nissan on the playing field, if you will. That's an interesting history and proof that so many OEMs, major brands, really need to partner and have strength in numbers that allow them to really become uh, families of cars as opposed to individuals brands. Look at Volkswagen Group and the fact that they own everybody from Skoda to Bugatti and similarly other affiliations that have made all of the products stronger by virtue of that. I agree. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. We're back with Pete Evanoff. Pete, let's switch topics a little. I think it'd be impossible to talk about the Z without talking about the GTR. Coincidentally, I guess both cars are 50 years old in 2020. And both of those are managed by Hiroshi Tamura, the gentleman we talked about at the beginning of our podcast. Tamura-san is kind of Mr. GTR and Mr. Z. He is the caretaker, if you will, of both cars. His goal is to make sure that each one of those has a future long after he has retired from the company. Godzilla, as we all refer to the GTR, is a remarkable vehicle in terms of power, in terms of its awesomeness. And certainly it is the halo brand of Nissan. Whereas the Z is the face of Nissan, the GTR is this way up here, halo aspirational vehicle. It's an amazing car. I think I drove my first GTR in 2007, right when they came out. And I've driven them successively in every model upgrade. And it's a car that has a distinct personality. Godzilla certainly one of them. But it can also be a fairly tame Dr. Jekyll and not always a Mr. Hyde. I mean, the car is actually a car you can drive at a remarkable achievement in terms of performance and all of that relative to its price, which while not inexpensive, is at least within the realm of consideration for mere mortals. The Z car, of course, much more so in recent years. It's changed its look and its feel. I say recent, really, I'm thinking all the way back to 2002, which I guess doesn't make it that recent at all. But that's when the 350Z came out. And that was a whole new look, catapulted the Z into the 21st century. How did that car take off and how successful was that? Do you remember the movie with Kevin Costner, Field of Dreams? There was the saying that if he builds it, they will come. Yeah. One day on our desks when we came to work, and this was always a big thing at Nissan, is that there was always some kind of symbolism tied to a 
big announcement. So on our desk in the morning was a baseball and the baseball said, we will build it. And that was a sign that the new Z was coming. And that was in 2000. When it finally showed up in 2002, the three goals that were inherent in building the new Z was that it would be powerful, it would be unique, and it would be affordable. One of the factors that led to the demise of the 300ZX back in 1996 was that it had become unaffordable. Yeah, it was a costly car. The sales had trickled down quite a bit. The new Z in 2002 had been calculated, had been priced, had been built with a sales price or an MSRP that was within the realm of a new audience that really could afford it. And it was designed with enough power that it would be able to compete with whatever was on the market at that time. It was a 911 capability but it was a great car with a very distinctive look. It was lighter, shorter, smaller. Those are the characteristics that we were trying to achieve. So it was built, it was ready, it was launched, and it was with great fanfare that the car came out. And that car soldiered on for quite a while. I guess in, what, 2009, it got replaced with the 370Z, and that's essentially the nameplate that we have today. The idea was to launch the car in 2002 with a new name, but to keep the same soul. And then that car lasted until 2000. 2009 when the 370 new name came out with a little more horsepower, slightly modified in terms of the look, but still retaining kind of the same stance, the same silhouette, but with new modifications, new upgrades, new technology. Well, the 50th anniversary edition of the 370Z, I guess, is the cap on a half century of success for that model. But I know there's one called the Nismo, and that's been a name that's been attached to some of the super high performance Nissans for a while. Can you explain to us what Nismo means? Nismo stands for Nissan Motor sports. It's their high performance brand. It's their high performance parts division. They make a lot of money, obviously selling high performance parts. So Nismo itself, the car is a compilation of their high performance parts integrated, if you will, into a special car. They look pretty remarkable. I guess if you want to check all the boxes, you order yourself a 370Z Nismo and you've got the 50th anniversary edition that is going to be quite collectible going forward. Speaking of going forward, what do you think Tamarasan envisions? for the future of the Z nameplate. I spoke to him just a couple of days ago, actually. He's very excited about the Z Proto, as they call it. It's going to take probably another two years before the car actually sees the showroom. Obviously, the sooner the better. His goal is to have the car come out with a twin-turbo six-speed manual, which will be wonderful. One of the only manuals left in the world by then. It will come with an automatic as well. That's an option. But it's got so many components that bring a full circle between both the two 40Z. And then Alfonso Biasa, who is the head of design, his first Z was the 300ZX. And it had such an impact on him that he wanted to incorporate a lot of the impact of that car. So that's why you see the taillights from the 300ZX in the new Z Proto. The hood and the edges of the car, it has a katana blade, which goes back to the heritage of the samurai soldier. But the thing that I always feel is so critical is to have the three dials on the dash. And that's something that they have maintained all along. And to me, that that represents a big part of the heritage of 240Z. Well, we've talked about the future of the nameplate, and it sounds like it's positioned for another 50 years if we're all driving by then. But let's look back on some of the older cars again and talk about the collector market. I know you were involved in the Vintage Z project and Japanese cars across the board, not just Datsuns, Nissans, Toyotas, Hondas, Mazdas. They're all very, very collectible now, those cars from the early era. They've really kind of taken off among younger collectors and maybe some older guys too. 
too. And among these cars, the 240Z is probably one of the linchpins of any Japanese car collection. Talk about some of the models, the most desirable ones, the special editions. Can you explain what Fair Lady really is and covered headlights versus the uncovered headlights and all the stuff that we see that I always wonder about? Fair Lady, the name came from the fact that My Fair Lady was a great theatrical performance. It was a play. And the president of Nissan Japan at the time loved the play and he wanted to use that name for his upcoming line of cars. <laughs> That's how it started. And instead of saying My Fair Lady, they just used Fair Lady. Oh, isn't that something? Obviously, they had to get the rights to use the name, but that's how the car, at least the sports car, and it goes back to 1960, where they first started applying that to their original ragtop. Although Mr. K said that isn't going to work in the United States. It's just not masculine enough for the American consumer. So he fought long and hard for the name 240Z, which was obviously reflective of the displacement of the engine. And then you mentioned covered lights versus the open scoops. There's also the Genos, which is the covered nose. Again, some of these are rare. Some of these are Japanese only. The Genos was really mostly a Japanese product. There are some that have a little spoiler on the back. There's some that have spoilers on the front. Most of those came from the parts bin, from the racing program, and you could order some of these accessories. But honestly, the cars started becoming more collectible in the last five to seven years. Up to that point, the Zs really weren't generating a whole lot of return. Other Japanese cars were more desirable. You mentioned the 2000 GT, the Toyota. That car has skyrocketed probably in some respect because it featured in the James Bond movie. All cars that feature in James Bond movies for whatever reason seem to have a certain value ascribed to them. Except my Z3. <laughs> the Z3 <laughs> and the Lotus. But that car seemed to have a certain value. Other cars that have really mushroomed in the last few years, the Supra, the original, what is it? The Land Cruiser. Land yeah. Cruiser. That car has really increased in value. Those are the cars that I would see have, have value. But really, all of a sudden, the Z car, and I'm proud to say the ones that we made at the Z store, these are now called the Restoration Zs, have really increased in value because we only made 38 of them. And so they're all basically hand-built. Pierre Z made a number of them here in Hawthorne. Mark Jones made a bunch of them in Signal Hill at Dotson Alley. And we had two other, Les Kennedy made one or two, and a couple other folks, old car design made two. These cars were all hand-built. We took old Zs. I bought all of them, all 240Zs locally, paid 2000 3000 for them, and then we restored them all on a rotisserie, all new body, completely down to the metal, dipped to some extent that we could. We brought in new wiring. I mean, we did a complete restoration. I remember when that program came out, I was really impressed that a manufacturer would actually undertake such a heartfelt project under their own wing and that they regarded their history as being so significant that they wanted to get these cars back to perfect condition and back on the road. You know, Robert, it was heartfelt, but it was also, again, a marketing decision. Keep in mind that the 300ZX had just been discontinued in 1996. We did the Z program for two reasons. One, to keep the name Z fresh in people's minds because we anticipated at some point that we would have a new Z. We didn't know when. So the idea was to keep the Z in the minds of people. And we had an accompanying marketing program with heavy advertising and all the buff books. We also did a lot of PR. We built a press car that saw a lot of miles being driven by a lot of journalists. And then the other thing was that we had to protect the trademark. I'll tell you right now, 
now that a certain manufacturer that makes another Z-based car tried to pursue the trademark, saying that the Z in America was no longer being used. Therefore, they wanted to take control of the Z trademark. So it was both a legal and a marketing decision to do this. It paid off for us in terms of keeping this bridge between the old Z and the new one, which we announced obviously in 2000. That four-year span was important for Nissan, but it was very heartfelt because it was important for all of us to build the car. At one point in the employee parking lot, I probably had 50 old UZs. At first, they were all exposed. And then somebody from HR said, you need to cover those cars. So we nicely covered them all up. And then eventually we had to move them. Oh, that's funny. Well, Pete, it sounds like it was a great project. Obviously, you focused on 240Zs. So those first four years of production, is that right? You didn't do later cars? We actually didn't build any 73s because the 73 I didn't really want to build. That was the first year of the emission changes. So I really focused from 70 to 72. So from 70, 71, and 72, that's the car that a collector would want to look for in terms of the emissions and in terms of the purity of the design and the bumpers and all that kind of good stuff. Those early Zs and any unrestored original Z and anything that Mr. K has kind of touched, those cars have really escalated in the marketplace now. And I suspect that the cars are not going to get any less desirable as time goes on. They won't. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtcocom slash a moment of your time. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Pete, what's in your garage? Do you have a Z in your garage? I don't right now. I've had three in the past. I've had a 240. I was in the publishing business out of grad school and I had a company car, which was a 280ZX turbo. I lived in Denver, Colorado. It snows in Denver an incredible amount. And I had to put kitty litter in the back because that car just went nuts in the snow. But that was my company car, which was a wonderful car. I also had a 300ZX. I worked for Steve Millen before I worked for Nissan. It was the fact that I worked for Millen that got me hired by Nissan. We built a tribute car for the 25th anniversary of Nissan Z, which we called the SMZ. It had a different aerodynamic look and big brakes, uh, Yokohama tires. It really was a nice, nice car. And I had a Z then. So I've had three. I don't have one now, but I really would like to get one of the new Zs that comes out. What's in my garage right now? I've got a 63 Corvair, which is the one that was in a movie called Zodiac. Bought that from the studio. I've got a 65 Ranchero, just pristine. I've got a 65 Thunderbird Special Landau. I have a 66 Mustang Convertible. And I have a 73 Triumph PR6. And then I have a 2015 Camaro 2SS and an Audi Allroad. Boy, you've got quite a stable there. And there's a lot of great American iron for a fellow who's an expert on Japanese cars. I think you're definitely waving the flag for General Motors and a little bit of Ford here and there. I know. Uh, that's a nice collection of cars. And of course, the Corvair is a bit of an outlier. Another car that doesn't get all the respect 
its due for being such a forward-thinking design. Yeah, I love the Corvair. My dad had a Corvair, so my dad loved rear-engine cars. He had two Renault Dolphins. Oh, good heavens. Boy, you don't see those on the road anymore. And then he had a Corvair, so I don't know why he liked rear-engine cars, but then I ended up buying one too. Because they are fun to drive, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing more fun and sometimes surprising than a rear-engine car. But when it comes to classic looks and style, I think it's hard to beat the 240Z, especially when you put it in the context of the early 70s and you see what was happening to automotive designs then. You can put that car up side by side with any E-Type or any Ferrari from the era and it stylistically really does hold its own. I agree. A great testament to a company that took a hell of a chance with a market that had no idea they were coming. Oh, I agree. It was a gamble, but it really paid off. I want to talk about your book for a minute, Pete, because your book is really a cut above in the arena of automotive books. It's beautifully designed, by the way. It's not only well laid out, but it's really an attractive design aesthetic. When it comes to the information, man, you drill deep. For anyone who wants to know literally the nuts and bolts of the Z car history, your book has it. It really goes deep into the crevices and pulls out all the little goodies that would probably otherwise never be told. As someone who's been involved with Nissan for quite a while, I appreciate that. I love cars. I have always loved cars since I was a kid. And to be able to be in the automotive business for as long as I have been was just a dream of mine. I started my automotive journey back in 1985 working for SCCA. And then I had a stint working for Celine helping him market and sell his Mustangs. And then I left after his IndyCar program exploded and I went to work for Ford and did some work for them. That got me at Bob Bondurant and I worked at his school high performance driving in Phoenix right when he moved there and spent three years there. Then got hired on at Steve Millen's and that got me into Nissan. And after that, I worked in the advertising business and then became a teacher. So I've had a very diversified career, but writing has been fun fundamental to all of that. I teach writing now. I teach writing for advertising. I teach copywriting. I teach marketing. But being able to follow my passion has been absolutely critical. That's a great career arc from SCCA motorsport to advertising really kind of covers the gamut when it comes to cars. You mentioned the fact that the spiritual guide to all this is Yutaka Kariyama, Mr. K. He lived to be 105, so he did something right. His signature autograph was always love cars, love people, love life. Boy, if I could take a little piece of that and apply that to my own life, I would be so grateful. I'm so grateful to be able to have written this book. And I thank the folks at Motorbooks for giving me this opportunity and the folks at Nissan for letting me put into words the passion that they have for this car and and celebrate it. But that to me is important to a writer and to a person that, like I said, is passionate about cars as I am. I'm living the dream. Thanks to Pete Evanaugh, author of Nissan Z, 50 years of exhilarating experience for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, sound engineering by Michael Kennedy, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.